William Collins presents Bloody Brilliant Women with me, Cathy Newman. This is a history of our times. This is a history of the pioneering women who defied the odds to transform modern Britain. This is a history of women who achieved remarkable things but have faded into oblivion. Throughout this series, you'll be hearing some selected extracts from my audiobook, Bloody Brilliant Women, The Pioneers, Revolutionaries and Geniuses Your History Teacher Forgot to Mention, which tells the stories of incredible women from the 1880s to the modern day. This episode is dedicated to Beatrice Schilling, a truly phenomenal woman of the 20th century. She was an aeronautical engineer and amateur racing driver whose work with the RAF was integral to victory in the Battle of Britain. In 1948, she was awarded an OBE for her contribution to the war effort. Let's hear her story. Part 1 In the late summer of 1940, Virginia Woolf was living at Monk's house, the weatherboarded 18th-century cottage near Lewis she and her husband Leonard had bought just after the First World War. Usually it offered respite from the mayhem of wartime London. This time, though, Woolf's sleep was disrupted by planes flying overhead and by the soft crunch of anti-aircraft guns. It is a queer experience, she wrote in her essay, Thoughts on Peace in an Air Raid, lying in the dark and listening to the zoom of a hornet which may at any moment sting you to death. Yet it is a sound, far more than prayers and anthems, that should compel one to think about peace. Thinking about peace was, Wolfe believed, an urgent necessity. After all, peace was the only efficient air raid shelter. And yet once again men were fighting. Men had been given weapons, while women at this stage of the Second World War had not. Women had to find something else to fight with. Ideas. But women's ideas, Wolfe believed, were scorned. They had no power because women lacked the political clout to implement them. For now, they had to make do with what Wolfe called private thinking, tea-table thinking. As she wrote, the distant buzzing of the planes changed to a sound like a branch being soared overhead. Wolfe remembered something she read in the Times that morning, something Nancy Astor wrote or said in Parliament. Women of ability are held down because of a subconscious Hitlerism in the hearts of men. This sounds pretty harsh. What is Hitlerism? For Wolfe, it was aggression motivated by an urge to dominate and enslave. And sometimes women seemed complicit in that enslavement, styling themselves as male fantasy figures, clones with crimson nails and painted faces. Was Wolfe right about women's impotence? She may perhaps have felt differently at the end of the war, one that involved women to an unprecedented degree. Tragically, we'll never know. She killed herself in March 1941, fearing another attack of the mental illness that had dogged her throughout her life. Part 2 The Battle of Britain, fought in the skies between July and November 1940, was a pivotal moment in the Second World War. The pulverising of Warsaw by the Germans in September 1939 and Rotterdam the following May meant Britain was prepared for aerial bombardment. 
Until this point, for many at home, nothing much had happened since war was declared, a situation reflected in contemporary nicknames for the conflict's early months, the Boer War or the Phony War. During the Battle of Britain, the Germans attacked coastal targets and British shipping in the English Channel before moving inland to focus on airfields, ports, communication centres and, of course, London in the series of devastating attacks known as the Blitz. Had Britain failed to defeat the Luftwaffe at this stage, it is likely that Hitler would have gone ahead with Operation Sea Lion, his planned amphibious and airborne invasion of Britain. But although fighting continued into November, and the Blitz didn't stop completely until May 1941, by mid-September the Luftwaffe's losses had become unsustainable. Hitler switched his attention to Russia and postponed Operation Sea Lion indefinitely. You wouldn't necessarily know it from the history books, but one woman was crucial to Britain's victory. In some ways, the Luftwaffe's Messerschmitt 109 fighters and the RAF's Hurricanes and Spitfires were technically much of a muchness. But the Luftwaffe did have one major advantage over the RAF, the 109's fuel-injected Daimler-Benz engines. By contrast, the Rolls-Royce Merlin engines used in the first generation of Spitfires and Hurricanes were carburettor engines with a fatal flaw. If a pilot went into a dive to try to shake off an enemy plane, the negative G momentarily starved the engine of fuel before the positive G created by pulling out of the dive flooded it. The engine would splutter and sometimes cut out entirely. Pilots were dying unnecessarily. The RAF badly needed a new generation of fuel-injected engines. First, however, it needed to identify the problem with the existing ones and supply a quick fix. Step forward, Beatrice Schilling. The youngest of three daughters, Beatrice was born on the 8th of March 1909 to Henry and Annie Schilling in Waterlooville, Hampshire, then a small village newly famous for its golf course. She stood out not just because of her talent for what her biographer Matthew Freudenberg calls unrepentant brevity, shan't, she once said when asked to apologise for biting her sister, but because she was more interested in Meccano than needlework. Age 12, she won a prize in a national competition set by Meccano magazine, for building a working model of a spinning wheel. By 14, she had saved up with her sister Anne to buy a two-stroke Royal Enfield motorbike. When other girls her age were pressing flowers, Beatrice was at the bottom of the garden dismantling and reassembling the Enfield's 225cc engine. At school, she excelled at maths and science and decided, aged 15, that she wanted to become an engineer. By 1926, when Schilling left school, the world had opened up significantly for women. They were better educated as a result of the Education Acts of 1902 and 1918, and this led to more job opportunities, mostly in light industries, making electrical goods, for example, or as teachers, nurses and clerks. As we've seen, the Sex Disqualification Removal Act of 1919 made it easier for them to go to university and enter certain professions, with strings attached, of course. Even so, as Freudenberg observes, it remained the case that for a woman in the 1920s, a career in lion taming would have been more realistic than one in engineering. As we've seen, the First World War created opportunities for women only to snatch them away in the aftermath as demobilisation returned men to the workplace. It was assumed women would meekly return to their pre-war roles, relieved that the natural order of things had been restored, Men disliked the trespass of women into their professional space and resisted all demands for them to be paid the same. This was a particular problem in engineering. 
Sir Arthur Percy Morris Fleming, who developed vital radar submarine detection equipment while working at the British Westinghouse Company during the First World War, stated boldly that the average woman does not possess the same engineering instinct as the average man. It was to counter such assumptions that two female engineers, propeller gluer and lathe turner Verena Holmes and electrical engineer Margaret Partridge, helped to establish the Women's Engineering Society, WES, in 1919. Partridge had a grand plan, to install and operate her own power plant in Bungie in Suffolk, having already wired four English villages for electricity. She wanted a female apprentice to train up, but had such trouble finding the right person that she resorted to sending a WES circular around girls' schools in the hope that a perceptive teacher might identify a suitable candidate. When the circular arrived, Schilling's school alerted her mother, who contacted Partridge. Once hired, Schilling thrived at the power plant, and with Partridge's help went on to take a degree in engineering at Manchester University, then an MSc in mechanical engineering, studying the working temperatures of pistons in different types of diesel engines. In her spare time, she joined the British Motorcycle Racing Club, upgrading her bike to a 500cc Norton, with the intention of racing at the 2.75-mile Brooklyn Circuit near Weybridge in Surrey. Schilling soon became the first woman to lap the circuit at 100 miles an hour, winning a gold star. When she met and fell in love with another engineer and racing enthusiast, George Naylor, she agreed to marry him only after he had gained a gold star himself. While she may have been able to dictate terms at home, instances of petty sexism dogged Schilling's professional progress. On a trip to an aircraft manufacturer in Bristol to observe engines being assembled, she had to be kept out of sight of the head of the engine division because he didn't tolerate women in his factory. Despite this, she managed to forge a long career in aeronautical engineering. On the 1st of November 1939, two months into the Second World War, she was appointed technical officer in charge of carburettor research and development work at the Royal Air Establishment at Farnborough. The problem of the Merlin engines cutting out had been noted on test flights in 1938, but disregarded. Only in 1940, once the Battle of Britain had begun, did it become clear that aerobatics, swooping, rolling, diving, were an essential element of fighter battles. As long as German pilots were able to perform these feats untroubled by glitches, the bigger the advantage they would enjoy over their RAF counterparts. The search for a solution took over a year. Schilling and her team worked 19-hour shifts, testing and retesting the engines, trying to recreate the conditions in which cutouts might occur. Eventually, Schilling solved the mystery of how negative G affected the rate and extent of fuel delivery to the carburettors. The flow of fuel into the float chambers, cavities containing a device which floats on the surface of the fuel and seals off the flow as the level rises, had to be controlled so that there was enough to supply maximum engine power but not enough to flood the space. Her solution was a brass restrictor, basically a disc with a hole in it, which could be fitted without removing the engine from the aircraft between the end of the fuel intake pipe and the union at the entrance to the carburettor fuel inlet gallery. To Schilling's apparent amusement, the restrictor was christened Miss Schilling's Orifice by the Rolls-Royce engineer Sir Stanley Hooker and, for better or worse, became known by this name throughout the RAF. Schilling installed it herself, riding from airfield to airfield on her tool-laden Norton, braze-welding the brass collars to the inside of the affected plane's carburettors. In January 1942, Tilly, as her colleagues called her, strictly behind her back, 
was promoted to the grade of senior technical officer, becoming head of the engines and accessories section. In 1948, she received the OBE for her contribution to the war effort. Engineering genius she possessed in abundance. Management skills, not so much. As her biographer puts it, she could not pretend respect for men she believed did not merit their seniority, and her manner made some of them think of ways of making her disappear, rather than giving her a department to manage. Schilling isn't as well known as she should be, but there is a pub named after her in Farnborough in Hampshire, and in 2009 she topped Hampshire County Council's online poll of Hampshire-based historical figures, even beating Jane Austen. Thank you for listening to this episode of Bloody Brilliant Women with me, Cathy Newman. Bloody Brilliant Women, the pioneers, revolutionaries and geniuses your history teacher forgot to mention is available now in paperback from all good bookstores and as an audiobook and ebook from Apple Books, published by William Collins. Join me again in our next episode as we delve further into the pioneering women of the 20th century and meet more bloody brilliant women. <laughs>